Welcome to Red Lips and Eye Rolls. I'm Katara, and this is my show where I'll be encouraging you to live a life full of power and belonging. My work is to not only give you tools to belong to yourself, but to also cultivate cultures where Black, Indigenous, and women of color belong. I'm an expert eye roller that loves a red lip, that will be having some great conversations with some awesome people. I'll also be dropping some wisdom on you and giving you tips, tricks, and tools to live the life that you desire and the life that you deserve. So sit back and enjoy the show. Hey listeners, get ready for a great show. I sat down with one of my dear friends, Megan Gilmore, for a chat. Megan's one of my road dogs. Listen, anytime her and I get together, it's dynamic and fun, and we have great conversations, and I wanted you to get a taste of Megan. So, Megan is the founder and executive director of Lark Song. She has been coaching for over 10 years and has been studying and contributing to the fields of leadership and positive psychology for over a decade. She holds a bachelor's degree in psychology and in leadership and master's degree in addictions counseling. Megan has written, trained, consulted, and presented extensively on the topics of life purpose, leadership, coaching, addictions, and human development. Megan formed Larksong in 2013 and began bringing on partners soon thereafter with a commitment to courageously co-creating a world that purposefully chooses life and aliveness. Again, Megan's one of my road dogs. We, she has had my back more times than not, and I'm excited for you to experience her on this episode. Listen in as we dive into a convo about how she has taken personal responsibility for cultivating cultures of belonging in places and spaces that she shows up in. Megan, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. I told uh, my listeners that we're road dogs. Um, <laughs> we go way back. We're friends. Yeah. And I read your bio um, and talked a little bit about you, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself and talk about yourself and the work that you do. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to be on with you today, Katara. We've talked about it for a while. And so it's fun to be here with you. Um, I am a certified coach. My background's in leadership and addictions counseling, but about 12, 13 years ago, I started um, a professional coaching practice that led into creating um, an educational nonprofit. So I specifically work um, with individual coaching, group coaching, and well-being education um, from Marin, Indiana. Yay. Good work. Good work. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, thanks. So good. Um, so today, I wanted to have a convo. I mean, we could talk about a thousand different topics, you and I. Yeah. Um, yeah. But <laughs> I wanted to specifically uh, talk about how you have taken personal responsibility for cultivating cultures of belonging in places and spaces that you show up in. And, Mm -hmm. and I know just from us being friends that in the past, like last several years that you've had a greater awareness around how being a white woman has played a role in upholding um, the system of white supremacy and how you've actually benefited from a system that has um, oppressed other people. And right. so, you know, just a little topic. We're just diving yeah, it's in. It's just, you know, just an itty bitty yeah. light topic. Yeah, we're going to start light with, with having you on. Right, right. So, yeah. So take us on your personal journey of the awareness that you now hold. Yeah, I think that um, there was a big part of my life early on, childhood and adolescence, even early adulthood, where Uh, my awareness of the impact of racism grew. And then there was a shifting that I think we'll talk about later um, in -hmm. terms of um, how to address that awareness. So Mm -hmm. I'll talk about the awareness journey first, I think, and then Mm -hmm. um, maybe the shift. So when I was little, I 
lived in a town that um, was all white. There, mm-hmm. we had occasionally seasonal um, immigrant workers come in, and um, but they lived there temporarily. And so there was never an opportunity to really build relationship with anyone um, outside of my Caucasian race in the town Mm -hmm. that I grew up in. I was there from the time I was about um, three or four until I was 14. Um, And I remember this one, um, so just completely surrounded, right? All the um, Mm -hmm. athletics. I was an athlete. Um, so all my peers were white, all the people I worshiped with were white, all of the people that my parents worked with were white. And, um, but the town that I grew up in was also a center for the Ku Klux Klan Mm -hmm. and had like history rooted in and with, excuse me, in and with that organization. Throat's Mm -hmm. closing up as we're talking about the KKK. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there it goes. So, um. So I remember I was probably not even, maybe right around 10 years old, not even, but there was a march actually through our town, down our main streets, a KKK march, and all of the churches held a prayer vigil at one of the larger churches in town. And that church was about a block away from where the one part of the route um, was. Mm-hmm. And I was just so curious, like, what is happening? <laughs> what is happening? And I've heard that what's happening is so wrong. But I'm really curious, like, why are we all in this building hiding from what's wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, coming together and praying. So I snuck out of the church and I don't think my anybody even knows this, but I snuck out of the church, made sure that like the side door was open so I could get back in because I knew I would get in big trouble if people figured out that I was sneaking out. So I said I needed to go to the bathroom or something and then snuck out of the church instead and kind of hid behind some bushes to see if I could see um, what was happening. And I was able to see, you know, rows of people, humans in their white robes and hoods just, and it was completely silent, like, Mm. like, um, just eerie silence, you know, with all of these people, uh, marching down the main street of our town. And so I was able to see that, you know, felt the discomfort of that in my own body uh, and went back inside and um, finished, you know, playing with the other kids that were in there. But that was probably Mm. um, one of the first experiences I had where it seemed like people knew this was wrong and also didn't know how to handle it or teach their kids about it or, you know, or um, even how to teach them in a way that preserved their innocence or I don't know it just felt like it felt very curious to me because there it didn't feel certain like the messages I was receiving from people around me didn't feel certain Mm -hmm. about like why we were Mm -hmm. taking the steps that we were and why this was even happening in our our town that it was happening in um yeah so that that's a memory like a very clear memory that I have and then um, when I was and about four, can I interrupt? Can yeah, I interrupt you? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! So we were talking about this yesterday yeah, in preparation right. for this episode, and I just thought it was really interesting that I also remember being a child in my neighborhood, which was predominantly black mm-hmm. in Indiana, and the Ku Klux Klan came through marching, and I also was very curious. <laughs> <laughs> grandmother sent me inside, you know, like go inside, go inside something, mm-hmm. you know, we need to be safe. Like it was right. fear. I could see right. the fear on her face. And I remember sneaking on my front porch and looking out and being curious as well. And so mm-hmm. I when you were sharing that part of your story. I love how um, there was curiosity in you as a little girl yeah. around that. And there was curiosity in me and how our paths have crossed in this big world and how we're friends and doing work mm-hmm. together. And 
yeah, it's just really beautiful. I thought it would be really interesting that the listeners could hear that part too, that like yeah. while you were in your small town that was all predominantly white, white. Yeah. I was in my, <laughs> in my town, in my neighborhood that was predominantly black, mm-hmm. but the curiosity was in both of us. Yeah, so, in such different cool. environments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. really yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Anyway, yeah. yeah. The after after into like high school, I my parents started working in one of my parents started working in Washington D.C. and so we spent about half our time there in a D.C. suburb and then half our time back in the town that I mentioned in Indiana, and so it was really weird because when we moved into our apartment complex in the DC suburb, we were one of the only white families that lived Mm -hmm. in that apartment complex and um, lots of different races and nationalities there. Um, So, you know, kids would come to our house for like American food night (laughs) and we would get uh, like to try all of these different foods that we hadn't tried before too. And um, I was a bit older, but my, my younger brother got to develop a lot more friendships with people in um, that neighborhood. And, so it was just such a stark contrast, like going to um, our home in D.C. and coming back to our home in Indiana and the difference in culture and like different languages and different foods and different smells and dress and things like that. And um, I think at that point, what the awareness that was growing in me as a teenager was like, there's something I'm missing, you know, there's something that I really love about the range of humanity. And, um, Mm -hmm. and I want more of that, like, and I want other people to have more of that, that I love and that um, haven't experienced it before. So um, yeah, so just from that point on, I think the the common theme in my growing awareness about racism and experiences with diversity were, oh gosh, I, I really want more of this for myself and for my family and um, just like an increasing value of it, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. 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 It's like you, it also sounds like you kind of set out on a mission to create or set your life up in a way that made room for that. Right. right for sure. Having those families come to your place and, and, and sit yeah. and, and break bread together. Like it sounded like mm-hmm. you took that and, and, and set a table in your own life to say, you know, I want this, I want this to be a yeah. part of me. I want this to be a part of my family. I, I need this in my life. Yeah. I think that Honestly, I want to give credit to my mom for be, for yeah. doing that because I was still a young teenager. You know, she was the one in charge of making food and everything. So uh, she she took care of a lot of different people in her home and just like was gifted in hospitality and making just making room. Um, mm-hmm. And she also exposed me to lots of different art and art forms, um, which gave me an appreciation, I think, too, for like, all the different ways that beauty can show up in the world, and how to honor that. I think it was probably not until college that I started making decisions for myself Mm -hmm. around, um, like, asking women of color to mentor me. Um, Mm -hmm. So instead of, uh, there are lots of white women that made a huge, incredible impact in my life, but I would intentionally seek out African-American, African-American and Indian and, um, Latina women to mentor me and meet regularly with them to, um, ask them questions and receive from their wisdom. Um, and then I would also go to, um, different places of worship and spiritual practice that I hadn't ever been to, um, so, yeah, growing up in kind of a conservative uh, Christian home, uh, go, I was able to go to some mosques and Hindu temples and uh, Black Protestant ch- churches and <laughs> um, Chinese American churches and, and just see the different ways that they connected to the divine, too. Yeah. Um, 
and how those practices were so different from mine. Mm -hmm. But um, outside of just what's the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do, there was so much beauty and expression that, um, yeah, that then I started making those decisions to like make room for experiences in my life, right? Yeah. Um, Because I knew I was lacking something. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. Love that. When did you, when did you go from, you know, kind of analyzing racism outside of yourself? So seeing like, Mm -hmm. wait, this doesn't, this doesn't seem right or look right to making this shift and begin analyzing it, uh, racism inside of yourself. Yeah. What a question, right? That's a really (laughs) good bottom line question. (laughs) I think, um, I think that even within the context of my education and my professional practice, uh, I was really drawn to healing suffering in the world and, um, and so tried to educate myself and set myself up so that I could be a part of eliminating suffering in the world. And the way that I learned to do that was predominantly like by creating safe space for people. And so I became pretty skilled at creating safe spaces where different people could show up and share their thoughts and um, bring their voice and their style um, to a room um, when I was in charge of it, right? Like when I was yeah. when I yeah. was the person that got to set the space and make all the plans and had authority over it. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I did that for a while and I thought that this is the best that I can do. I want to, I want to make space for anyone in any body, um, to show up and be safe and comfortable enough to use their voice, um, here and be listened to, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then I went on to this retreat in about two years ago in Ojai, California. And we were doing a lot of different activities around um, contemplative spirituality and feminism and um, lots of different healing practices and uh, really just a beautiful experience. And toward the end of the second day, we did an exercise around um, authentic movement. So playing these different types of music and listening to our bodies and how they wanted to move and just letting them move that way without fear, you know? Um, And so I, there were five sets of movement, if you will. And so I was really engaged in doing what my body was telling me to do first movement, second movement. And then I got into the third movement and nothing felt authentic anymore. Like it didn't, it didn't feel authentic to keep going in my body. So I was like, well, what, what would? So I went outside of this barn, like into the desert <laughs> and thought maybe, maybe if I'm just by myself. And so I started moving by myself and that worked for a minute, but wasn't right for a while. And then I thought, well, maybe if I'm just still. So I laid down and was still and that worked for a minute. And then I was just done and I looked up and there was – Um, kind of like a barn full of women dancing. And then there was a front porch with women sitting on it. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to go sit with the women on the front porch. And it wasn't until I got up there that I realized like all the women in the barn were white. Uh, Predominantly, there might have been one or two that weren't. And then all of the women, all the women on the porch were women of color. Mm. And uh I, you know, just started talking and asking them, hey, what are you guys doing here? And they said, oh, that's a white girl thing. <laughs> white girl thing that's happening <laughs> happening over there. And I was like, really? Can you tell me? <laughs> Can you tell me more about that? You know, and so spent a couple hours just listening to them and their stories and laughing and asking curious questions. And But also felt like this discomfort in my gut rising up like what do you mean that's a white girl space (laughs) like why why like why is it that at this place that 
everyone, you know, it has been curated and created for everybody to feel safe and every voice to be heard. Are we still experiencing this type of separation where some bodies feel free and like they belong and then other bodies feel like they don't or like that space isn't for them somehow? It wasn't until the next day where we were all able to have a conversation together about 30 women in this group about what it looked like for white women to become better allies and advocates for women of color. It was one of the most transformative conversations uh, that I can remember having and um, really asked a lot of questions and the women that were there were all incredibly gracious and humble and really generous. And um, something that there were two things, there's so many things that shifted inside me as a result of that conversation, but two that really impacted me um, in terms of my perspective were at one point, um, one of the women was just talking about um, how it's not um, a woman of color's job to educate white women. (laughs) And for some reason before that, I had thought, oh, well, wouldn't that just be nice? Like, wouldn't that just be nice for us to like sit down and have a conversation (laughs) and you walk away feeling like you've educated me around something and um, I walk away knowing more, you know? And, um, but it wasn't until hearing from them say like, no, we've already educated so many times. Like there are already so many books and so many pieces of art and so many times we've used our voice and so many songs. Like if you aren't educated at this point, it's not anybody's fault, but your own. And, um, and I was like, wow. Okay. So two things. One I'm responsible for looking at how I'm being educated and who's educating me and taking responsibility for that. And secondly, the women of the, like the voices of the women in this circle are exhausted. And, um, and so checked in with them around that perception. Like what I'm hearing you say is that the voices of women of color are so tired and that they're waiting for white women to show up in the spaces that they can't and be their voice for them. Um, like bring, like, and maybe that's not even the right yeah. way to say it, but like bring their voice there, you know, not be their voice for them, but like bring their voice into those spaces yeah. and places that they either haven't been invited into yet mm-hmm. or access is restricted in some way or is not a space where um, it's been cultivated so that they belong. And um, the like advocacy yeah. fiery part of me that like really wants to eliminate suffering and protect what's innocent in the world was like, okay, I have some marching orders. Like I can yeah. do that. Um, you know? And then if the other piece was yeah. when um, one of the white women that was there several, quite a few of the white women that were there had adopted outside of their race. And so um, they were sharing like the difference between how they needed to parent their black children versus parenting their white children, even within the same family. And um, one of the women said, the thing is like, as I'm raising my sons, my biggest fear if my white son is pulled over when he's driving is like, how much is this ticket going to be? And my biggest fear if my black son is pulled over when he's driving is his, is, will he die? Like, will he come home? Um, yes. Wow. So, uh, right. So that like, as mm, a mother mm-hmm. too, that just yeah. really hit my heart and my spirit in a, in, you know, in a some kind of way, you know, just in a, in a way that um, was sobering and really exposed, like, um, the privilege that I have just, not just within my own body, but within the spaces that I inhabit and the extensions of myself that are my family and those relationships and stuff. So though, those specifically those two 
um, sharings or experiences were like, okay, I've got some work to do. Um, and it's not just outside myself. It's not just in, um, you know, these evil systems that are out there. It's actually within me first that I need to kind of look. Yeah. Wow. Is that, I mean, that's yeah. like you, you use the word sobering, sobering, humbling to be like, wait, right, it's right. not just the bad people. Yeah. Out there. Yeah. It's like, oh, right. Uh, right. It's actually, not just the people walking in the robes that I saw I when I was 10. You know, like it's not just them. It's not, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Ugh. Right. Yeah. Like, that's like a yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's also like with what I've learned about white fragility <laughs> and stuff at this point, it's also like, okay, now get over yourself and start doing the work. <laughs> like, good job yeah. recognizing and realizing. Yeah. And you've yeah. got some muscles you need to strengthen if you're going to be an active participant in um, these conversations and in these spaces. Yeah. I hope that you're enjoying this episode and we'll return to it soon. I wanted to let you know about my next episode that'll be dropping in just a few weeks. Layla Saad, the author of the groundbreaking book, Me and White Supremacy, stopped by Red Lips and Eye Rolls to talk about her book and her body of work. Listen, this book has hit the New York Times bestsellers list, the USA Today's bestsellers list, and many other bestsellers list. It was a dynamic conversation full of wisdom, full of vulnerability. Oh, it was such a great time, and I don't want you to miss it. So be watching for my combo with Layla. Now, let's get back to our conversation with my girl, Megan. your journey to becoming a better advocate, a better ally, a better amplifier Mm -hmm. for people of color. Um, Yeah. You know what, like you, you went to this. And then like what happened next? You come home, you're like, I got right. Yeah. I got some work to do. Right. Uh, This needs to read a book. Like what like what happened? Did you start kind of gathering well, some information? Um, the first like, thing did I did do? was apologize to the specifically the women of color that I was in relationship with, and um, for ways that I had unknowingly added to their oppression or not represented them well, or um, even just not grieved with them appropriately or opened up space to amplify their voice um, or represent them where um, the, in the spaces they didn't have access or like not share platforms with them when I very easily could have. Um, So that I think was the first step was just making it about making it first about my real life, you know, like, and the, the people that I love in, uh, in my life and not, you know, not assuming like, oh, they'll get it. I'm growing and changing. I'm at a different place in my journey. Like not assuming or denying that my lack of awareness up until that point didn't have any impact on the people that I loved. So that, yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I got one of those. Uh, wow. I was one of the recipients of the apology. And as a black woman, receiving that from my white friend mm-hmm. was pretty yeah. shocking. I have to admit it. It was, it was, I was surprised. And I think that, um, I, I mean, you you know when you sent me the message as I listened to it mm-hmm. and then I listened to it again and I listened to it again um my, right. my first reaction was like oh no 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 Megan yeah we oh, love each other it's, it's okay fine. you're fine <laughs> and then I 
Right. I don't even know what you're talking about. It's fine. Mm -hmm. And then I listened to it again and again. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, I, I, I received this apology. Yeah. Right? Like for, at first I didn't want to receive it. Like there's this like thing that comes up in me that that said that mm. you know kind of brushes it off right. or pretends like it's not, you know. Um I'm just so used to as a brown and black woman weaving through life. Um ma- right, like just something yeah. that's not okay, okay. <laughs> Yeah. No big deal. I'm like, oh wait, no, this no, this is this is needed. Mm-hmm. This is good. This is I received this. And yeah. you know, with tears streaming down my face, I didn't know yeah. how I right. needed that apology from you. I didn't even know I needed it. And I think that that was a huge pivotal moment right. in um both of our lives. And in, in, in our relationship, that was really beautiful, and and some really beautiful things have yeah. even blossomed from that moment. So, yeah, it was it was yeah. interesting being the receiver yeah, of the it's apology. Very, like, it's it's interesting because there's your experience, and then another woman that I also apologize to. She she she's like, well, let's get together for coffee because there's some stuff I want to tell you. <laughs> I was like, okay, great. And then she brought two people with her because she said, I want you to witness this. Like, this is what this is. These are the conversations that need to be happening around our tables. And um, instead of uh, I and I was kind of put off, like not put off, caught off guard, like, whoa, who are these two other people that are witnessing like such an intimate conversation (laughs) between but also what courage and beauty and like lack of ego on her part to invite other people in to witness that um, conversation. And so it, yeah, which I didn't expect. I just knew this is the right thing to do. Like I can't act like, yeah, I can't act like this hasn't had impact before in my life. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that it sounds like kind of a mm-hmm. one of the steps or the right. kind of first step that you made was really ownership of hey, I, I, of white privilege of being a part right. of upholding an oppressive system and and right. the ownership that wait, I play a role in this and I have to you know, at least, you know, the first right. step I can physically do today is pick up a phone, is yeah. reach out and just say, right. I yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely <laughs> no, like taking ownership and realizing right. like you, if, if you're walking around in a white body, you have done damage and it's, it's not because it's yeah. probably not because you wanted to or intended to, but I think we can all empathize with like being harmed by somebody because of something that they said to us or about us in our presence that was hurtful, even if the intention wasn't um, malicious, you know? So um, it's not really about, what I intended right. or didn't. It's more about what the actual impact was of me walking around unconscious of my privilege. Yeah. Um, so I would say that's the first step, like having the courage to bring yourself with humility to the damage that you've already done in the relationships that are important to you. Um, the second step for me was assessing what voices am I listening to? So how am I taking responsibility for educating myself? And I think this is one of the most impacting things as I've shared with other people uh, as well, like assess what movies we're watching and are they produced and directed and written and financed? (laughs) It's fine if the white men are financing it, I think, but like are they produced and written and created and directed by white men? Like, are all the books on my shelves written by white men? 
are, is everything that I'm reading about spirituality or about creativity or about expression or about like what is um, the right way to advocate within the world? Is that all written by white men? Is the art that I'm consuming when I go to different museums or exhibits or concerts um, produced by just white people? Like, um, and looking at my social media following and are the people that I'm following on social media and receiving from, are they all white? Like, you know, (laughs) or even predominantly white. So I had to come home and get rid of a lot of books, not because they were bad books necessarily, but because I had to make room on my shelf for other books and I had to make room on my walls for other art. And I had to make room in my, you know, it's really nice because Spotify gives you like an unlimited amount of playlists. So, but, (laughs) you know, start listening to other artists and, you know, um, yeah. And so that was the second step I think was, just assessing who am I following? What am I listening to? Who am I letting educate me? Um, And getting rid of the voices that all said the same thing or looked the same way and putting in more voices that um, maybe I agreed with, maybe I didn't agree with, maybe I knew what they were saying, maybe I didn't know what they were saying, but they were different voices. And um, predominantly that means for me, um, highlighting specifically black women. Um, and as I search for and add to my bookshelves and, you know, art and playlists and all of those different things, um, black women, then I'm also elevating all other marginalized people, groups and bodies. So, yeah. So that would probably be the second thing. Yeah, I th- so um, after taking kind of taking inventory of the voices that you're listening to, and um, you know, getting rid of getting making room by getting rid of the things that you've already heard or known or seen, um, and then then it becomes really important to actually pay for the education that you're receiving um, from women of color, um, and I'm going to, I'm going to say women of color. Um, and by that, I mean, if you are receiving education from anyone that has been marginalized or oppressed, you absolutely need to pay for the education that you're receiving, um, with money, like not with, not with like encouraging texts or DMs or whatever, like actually paying them. And so, Uh, Yeah, so there were things like, um, there were documentaries that I had never heard of that my, um, my new folks that I was following, some of the friends, some of them didn't know me from anybody, you know, um, they would post about, I can't believe I'm not hearing anything about this from white women, what's going on. And so I would dig into what they were sharing. Um, a lot of it around like sexual abuse and sexual harassment of women of color that wasn't being talked about and wasn't being heard in white communities. And um, and then say, hey, what's your PayPal or Venmo? Can I please pay you for what I've received from you today? And um, and the, the there was a lot of surprise from that too, even from the women that were like advocating for reparations or, you know, they were like, Oh my gosh, she's actually paying me. Um, yeah. So, uh, I would say pay for the education that you're receiving, even if someone is offering it for free, they're putting so much time and so much energy and so much of their spirit into creating that content and putting that up and it deserves to be compensated. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I would say that and then share like share the things that are impacting you um with other white women like I, yeah. And the last I've got some resources and stuff if people are interested in that, but I think one of the biggest obstacles or hurdles that we need to get over as white women is our fear of being wrong. Um 
because we we've got our own really complicated uh junk going on like <laughs> in our minds and hearts because of patriarchy and it's this weird like as women we're oppressed and as white women we're also the oppressor and so there's um there's some complicated stuff to entangle with that um but I think that it's really important to show up and not be afraid to be wrong, even if that means that that might mean a demotion for us. That might mean that we are not invited back to the table that was all white men till we showed up. You know, um, that might mean that um, we're putting things that we care about and have worked really hard to get on the line for the sake of representing and bringing in um, other women's voice, like uh, women of color and their voices to the table. So uh, don't afraid to be wrong. Don't try not to be afraid to be wrong. And even if you are afraid to be wrong, do it anyway. Like um, a, a line that I've used a lot is like, be clumsy. It'll feel clumsy at first because you don't know the right words to use and you're scared that you're going to offend somebody just by saying the word racism. And you're scared that you're going to like that people aren't going to listen to you or certain, um, certain folks might even close off their ears or like be tired of talking about it or whatever. And that, it's okay. All of that is okay. It's okay for you to get it wrong as long as you're unattached to that and are willing to receive feedback on like, how could I get it more right next time? Knowing that as a white woman, I'm always going to get it a little bit wrong. Like, you know, um, so. Right. I mean, absolutely yeah. true. And being willing to receive that feedback and not your right. response not right. be defensive. Yes. But openness, because as mm-hmm. you know, I've had to have those conversations since yeah. actually we've actually had those conversations. Yeah, me. Yeah. And yes, mm-hmm. I've been. You know, I've come to you, and we've sat mm-hmm. down, and I've said this that when you said it like this, right. like I know, I know you, mm-hmm. Megan. But when you said yeah. it like this, I was offended. And having, and as a black woman, having the courage yeah. to say that, and and maybe it's not courage. Maybe it's just. I think for me, especially in our situation, I I again mm-hmm. default to making it not a big deal, and yeah. talking myself out of my offense, mm-hmm. and saying like, "Oh, it's Megan, and she didn't mean it," and but yeah. and then I mm-hmm. so I've been growing right? And this whole whole cultivating cultures of belonging and white supremacy and racism. And like, I've been growing and saying, hold up, like, stop wish, stop like, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of brushing that off. Like it was no big deal. Like, no, you actually were offended. And that was that your offense is valid. Mm -hmm. And you need to speak up and you need to say that. And, um, and I think having you respond um, receptively and mm. openly versus defensively was everything. It was everything. It was, mm-hmm. it was very much like, tell me more. Mm-hmm. Tell me instead of being like, well, I didn't mean it like that, you know. And I, and I think that if if me as a brown black woman yeah. can have more of those conversations with mm-hmm. white women, I think that we mm-hmm. can together move the needle, right? If I can say, you know, bring some. Like, oh, like, yeah. no, this is really, this made me upset. I'm angry. I'm offended. Yeah. And bringing that to the table um, and, and mm-hmm. then the response be, you know, curiosity and, and how can I do better and be better? I think that um, yeah. white women and black yeah, women. Yeah, I sure together. hope so. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. 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 I know, girl. It's. Yeah, but yeah, but being mm-hmm. not being so so defensive and fragile as yeah. as white women, white people, right? To be open because because you know the the truth is, and I think you've said this. You there's no way for a person yeah. navigating life in a white body to ever fully know what it's like right. to weave through life in a brown right. and black body. 
there's no way. There's absolutely mm-hmm. no way for someone to fully know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm I'm married to a white man. And sometimes Ryan will say, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'll be explaining something. He's like, yeah, Actually, I know. No. I get it. <laughs> like, right. Actually, time out. No, no. Right. With your blonde hair and blue right. eyes, like you actually have no idea. So, um, yeah. so I think also understanding that as a white person, um, that you really can't ever fully yeah. know, but you can listen and you can win when it's uncomfortable, and you can take off the de- defensiveness yeah. and be and have openness. And um, I think that's a really important thing as as um, white people, um, start kind of unpacking and, mm-hmm. and kind of analyzing r- racism from the inside uh, out versus, you know, just, it's just outside of me. I think it's important to, yeah, to, for like, sure. And, and I think there's so even, there's even like, there's resistance to someone saying that if you're trying to, like, mm-hmm. if you're like, I'm trying to do the work and I've read White Fragility, like, <laughs> like I've, I've read these books and I'm doing my, and then <laughs> someone comes up and says, like, why are you being so fragile, you know, or, um, or that's addressed in some way. And I think one, um, one way of maybe conceptualizing it is like, as white people, our threshold or tolerance for even just racial discussion is so much lower than people of color because we we are not experiencing the negative like impact of racism on a daily basis in a way that like you know harms us or oppresses us or restricts us in different ways. And but if from the time you were born in your black or brown body, you'd been experiencing that, there's a certain like muscle, if you will, that's like strengthened for conversation. So a a way that I've tried to explain it to other white people is like, okay, have you ever gone to a place in the world that's a higher altitude than where you are now? Or, you know, you, you ran a race, right? Or marathon or something like that. You cannot start running a marathon if you haven't even gotten off your couch, right? But if you've been a runner for a while, you can. And if you've been living at elevation, like a high elevation for a while, um, your lungs get different. Like they breathe the air in differently and your body acclimates differently. However, if I just fly into my sister lives in Utah. So if I just fly into Utah and I don't take any sort of uh, precautions around elevation, I'm going to get a headache. My body doesn't know how to breathe there. Like, got to drink a lot of water. And I would just say it's like people of color have been living at elevation their whole lives. And then we show up and are like, oh, it's so hard to breathe here. Like, oh my gosh, how are you doing this? This is unreal. And they're just climbing their mountain and walking their life and everything. And you're just like, oh. and of course you would look over at somebody and be like, get yourself together. Like it's a walk, you know what I mean? get yourself together so it's our job as white people to like work on our lung capacity that's not anybody else's job like you know so like work on your own lung capacity so that you can be at elevation and having those discussions and having them more regularly and saying at like saying at the the meetings or around the boardroom where there are most or only white bodies like hey i have a problem with this there is not adequate representation for the population that we are serving around this table there's not adequate representation of the leaders that are actually doing this work around the table there are not so um and saying it over and over and over again until there are until there are so yeah Exactly. Oh my yeah. gosh, so good. Oh, I can. Yeah, I can, we I can probably could talking about this for another hour. You probably we, we yeah. probably should do part two to this for sure. I uh, do. Yeah. If you you have a resource list, um, I know that you have a resource list, and um, yeah, 
I can put that resource list on to my website. I'm going to do that. And then I'll also put it um, in the little awesome. info about this specific episode. So if you guys are listening um, and you want resources, you're ready to do the work, you're ready to start analyzing um, racism inside of you and, and how you're playing a part in upholding systems of oppression, um, we're going to have a resource list for you um, to, to kind of start that process. Or maybe you've already started and you just want more. Um, we're going to uh, make that awesome. available um, to you. So any final words, Megan, any final words of wisdom, you mm. know, little nuggets for the listeners? Yeah, I would just say that even the resources that we'll be giving you are from Black women. They're not from me originally. So um, whenever you're walking around as a white woman and, and you see, or just a white person, please, white males, please. (laughs) Um, and you notice, just notice where you are. Like notice if you go to the same coffee shop and there's only white bodies there, start going to different coffee shops too. Like if you notice that, the concerts that you've been to within the last year have all supported white male artists go to some concerts from women like with women of color that are supporting them like um yeah and just keep being okay being clumsy and becoming better yeah I think that's it yeah Thank you. Thank you for being my guest today. It was such a great conversation. Um, if listeners want to find you, they want to yeah, follow you. Yeah, you can follow me personally on Instagram, yeah. or you can follow my work with Lark Song on Instagram and Facebook, or check out our website, alarksong.com. So yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, Katara. Thank you so much for asking me. Oh my gosh. So good. I hope listeners that you enjoyed this episode and that you take on the work, you know, and the responsibility to to begin cultivating a culture of belonging in places and spaces that you show up in, that that you'll do the work. And as a black woman, I'm asking you to do that work, to do that work and Mm -hmm. um, to be an advocate for us. And to be an ally and an amplifier for us, because it's going to take white bodies doing this work to dismantle um, systems of oppression. If you want to see what I'm up to in between episodes, you can follow me on my social channels. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter. Um, You can also find me at KatarMcCarty.com. Yeah, go follow me. I'm always dropping some wisdom and pictures, info, and all the things. Go check me out. This episode of Red Lips and Eye Rolls was produced by Green Records in New Braunfels, Texas. The studio is situated on Lee Penn land. (laughs) 